You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear loving Heavenly Father, dear Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for making yourself known to us through it. Thank you for loving us and revealing yourself to us. Please use me now uh, to help us to learn more about you, that we might know you more, that we might love you ever so deeply, and that we might walk more closely in your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this evening I want to talk to you about confidence. And I know that as Americans, you all have lots of confidence. You've got it in spades, as we say in Australia. Uh, But as an Australian, confidence is something that I lack. I mean, as Americans, you've got confidence because, you know, you've got a great economy, a great, one of the biggest militaries in the world. You know, you're always winning medals at the Olympics. Um, You know, you've, you've got lots to be confident about. But as Australians, we have this kind of social phenomenon called tall poppy syndrome, where poppies being the flowers, when a a flower or a person grows bigger than the rest of the flowers, then someone else comes and chops that flower back down to size. So when someone feels like they're getting confident, someone comes and reminds them why they shouldn't be too confident, brings them back down to size. But despite the confidence that you might have and which I lack, I know that if we peel back the layers of your life that you might not feel so confident. Behind your social mask, you might be hiding a world of pain. You might be hiding an eating disorder or a relational breakdown, an emotional or physical or psychological abuse, social anxiety fear or crippling shame. You may look completely functional on the outside like I do, but yet on the inside you might feel like you're furiously paddling underwater. Well, the good news of Jesus Christ is that you can have confidence in him. When everything else feels like it's crumbling away, when you feel like you're losing control, when you don't have any confidence in yourself and your own ability, you can have confidence in Christ. You can have confidence in something which is far better. You can have confidence because we have a Saviour who has saved us and who has ushered ushered us into the throne room of God. And this is the argument of this passage and arguably of the whole of the book of Hebrews, that you can have confidence in your Saviour. In fact, Jesus is the only thing that you should have confidence in because everything else is wasting away. And the author of this letter has been arguing this since the first chapter that Jesus is better. Like the song that we were singing a few weeks ago, Jesus is better in all my sorrows, in every victory, Jesus is better. Than any comfort, more than all riches, Jesus is better. And more than angels and more than Moses, more than any high priest of the Old Testament, Jesus is better. In today's passage, we see that 
Jesus has a better ministry than the ministry of the Old Testament priests. This ministry is better because it's built upon a better covenant. This covenant is better because it's based upon better promises. Look at verse 6 with me. The author says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is better than Moses and Aaron and the Levitical priesthood because he has a better ministry which is, and he's a mediator of a better covenant which is enacted on better promises. The question is, why? Why, is he, why does Jesus have a better ministry? Why, are they better, why is it a better covenant? What are these promises and why are they better? What are the old promises that the old covenant was based on? Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment, but I'm going to start from the top of the passage and work my way down. It's always helpful when an author kind of telegraphs what he's about to say and what the main point is. And in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now the main point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I wonder if you've ever given much thought to what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. We often speculate what we might be doing in heaven, uh, whether we'll be eating or drinking or whether there'll be work, whether you'll have to use the restroom or not. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I really hope that uh, in heaven that I'll be able to fly. A lot of my theology is based on whether I'll be able to fly or not, which is not a good thing. But I really, you know, I think, I hope that I can just jump up from the ground and just fly unaided. I, I often have dreams about it. But have you, ever, have you ever thought about what Jesus is doing right now? It might seem like a trivial matter, but here we see that it's really not. We're told that Jesus is sitting down. This is not the first time that we've been told that in this book. At the start of this letter in chapter 1 verse 3 we read that after Jesus made purification for the sins of the whole world, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This idea is then repeated in chapter 10, verse 12, where we read, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And finally, in chapter 12, verse 2, we read, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, before the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This repetition alerts us to something very important. The author is making a connection between sacrifice and sitting down. This connection highlights the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice. In his death, Jesus made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And after this sacrifice had been made, he sat down. We can see how effective Jesus' sacrifice is by comparing it to the Levitical priesthood and their sacrifices. In chapter 9, verse 6, it says that the Old Testament priests would go regularly into the first section to perform their ritual duties and, to, uh, and then the high priest goes into the second section only once a year. But he goes in year after year to atone for the sins of the people. 
So these priests are constantly on their feet, going in and out, backwards and forwards, constantly making sacrifices. But Jesus, he has entered into the most holy place in heaven and has sat down after making a full and perfect sacrifice for our sins. His work is done. It is finished. He is not continually on his feet making sacrifices again and again, but he's taken his work clothes off. He's put his bag away and he's relaxing on his throne. Just like on the seventh day when God created the heavens and the earth, he rested from his work. So now Jesus is resting from his work for his sacrifice is complete. This idea leads into the train of thought that runs throughout the rest of the passage, the superiority sorry, of Jesus' ministry. For the place that Jesus has sat down is also important. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is a minister in the most holy of holy places, in the true tent set up by the Lord, not by men. Jesus isn't just sitting in any old chair. He's not in a pew. He's not sitting on a park bench or a bus stop. He's not lounging in his favourite lounge in the living room. He's seated next to the throne. He's serving in the throne room of God. It's this throne room that the earthly temple symbolises. The Levitical priests were serving merely a copy and a shadow of the heavenly throne room. See, the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of God's presence in the world. It represented the throne of God where God would sit amongst his people, ruling and reigning over them. But the temple was only ever a pale comparison to this heavenly throne room that Jesus now serves in. Look at verse 5 with me. Chapter 8, verse 5, that is. They serve a copy... Chapter 8? Yeah, chapter 8. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The ministry of the Old Testament priesthood was merely a foretaste of Jesus' ministry. It's as if God had instituted their ministry as a primer for Jesus' work, as though it was meant to teach us what sacrifices and the priesthood meant and looked like in order that we might be able to recognise what Jesus' work would be. But Jesus' ministry is better because it is the real deal. His ministry is the true form. He doesn't have to continually offer sacrifices or go in and out of the temple. His ministry is perfect and sufficient for the sins of the whole world. His ministry is better because he is the true high priest serving in the true temple. Jesus' ministry is better because it's built upon a better covenant also. The old covenant was imperfect, powerless and obsolete. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have, not, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The Old Covenant was imperfect because those who had agreed to it were unable to fulfil its requirements. Verse 8 says that God finds fault with the Israelites, with them. They broke the covenant that God had made with them. 
they were not faithful to him. They turned away and worshipped other gods. They did not live up to the agreement that they had made with God. The problem with the Old Covenant is not that God's moral laws or God's commandments are faulty or bad or wrong. The problem is with humanity and in this instance with the Israelites. The law was a good thing. It gave the Israelites a framework for living. It was the word of God which they were to live by. But the law could never deal with the human heart. It was incapable of changing the inner disposition of those who would follow it. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. According to this agreement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. The Old Covenant merely stipulated the law by which the Israelites would live. It never gave them the power to live it out. The Old Covenant raised the bar by which they were to live, but it didn't give them the ability to jump over it. Like a high jumper or pole vaulter at the Olympics, the bar was set higher than their natural abilities allowed them to go. We often have a similar view of Christianity, as though we have to live up to a certain standard. If you were a real Christian, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing that. Real Christians are set free from that sin. You shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke, don't even think about dancing. Definitely don't watch that TV show. A real Christian doesn't doubt or get sad or get anxious. A real Christian doesn't have mental problems or relationship problems or addiction problems or gender or sexual orientation problems. Christians are perfect, sinless, right? Wrong. All of that is a load of rubbish or trash, as you guys say. That is not Christianity. That is legalism. That is what the Pharisees believed. And it leads to trying to be your own saviour, trying to justify yourself before God and before others. Now, don't get me wrong, the, the fruit of faith, the fruit of faith is a transformed life. But perfection will not come until that final day when Christ returns. And until then we remain imperfect, unable to completely live up to God's standard, unable to completely honour God with our whole lives. But the good news of Christianity is that it's not about you and what you can do, but it's about what Jesus has done for you. It's a good news that even though you continue to dishonour God time and time again, turning away from him and rejecting his plan for your life, he does not put you to shame. But he rescues you and makes a perfect sacrifice for your sin and shame. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Where the old covenant was imperfect and powerless and obsolete, the new covenant is perfect and powerful and eternal. For the Old Covenant could only offer restricted access, partial cleansing and limited pardon. Look at chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. 
The old covenant only ever dealt with external things. It was about food and drink and various washings. It was limited in what it could do and only partially dealt with the sins of the people. It only ever granted a restricted access to God. The priests could only go into the inner tent once a year and they could only relate to God through this high priest. Their relationship was mediated through a restricted and imperfect system. What was needed was something better. This new covenant that we have is better for it deals with the problem of humanity. It cleanses cleanses the conscience and deals with our sin. And this new covenant is better because it's based on better promises. The old covenant was based on promises that God made with Israel through Moses, that if they keep his commandments, they will be blessed. In Exodus 19, right before Moses is given the Ten Commandments, God says to them this, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The Old Covenant was based on a two-way agreement in which both parties had to keep that agreement. If either side broke the, the laws of the agreement, then the covenant itself was broken and there would be dire consequences. If there's anything we know about the Israelites from the history of their people, it's that they are covenant breakers. They failed time and time again to keep this covenant. Notice in verse 8 that the writer of the Hebrews says, for he finds fault with them. Not speaking of the covenant, but of the Israelites. God finds fault with the people of Israel. The reason the old covenant was faulty was not because of the covenant itself, but because of the people. The people were incapable of living up to the standards. Is that God's fault? No. We must take the responsibility. We are the ones who have broken God's perfect law. We are the Israelites. We are the covenant breakers. We are the unfaithful. We wear the scarlet letter on our back. But there is good news. The good news is that God did not abandon us to shame and misery but he has made a new covenant with better promises. We see these promises in that long quotation of Jeremiah 31, which goes from verse 8 to verse 12. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbour, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There are three promises that God makes in these verses. In verse 10, he promises an inner understanding of the truth. In verse 11, there's the promise of an intimate relationship with God. 
And in verse 12, there's the promise of forgiveness of sins. This covenant is based totally on God's grace. It's a covenant about all that God is doing for us. Look at who's, look at who's doing all the work in these verses. Verse 8, I will establish. Verse 10, the covenant I will make, I will put and write, I will be their God. Verse 12, I will be merciful, I will remember their sins no more. I will, I will, I will, says the Lord. But so often we are the willing, aren't we? We think, my will, my will, my will. We want to be like Jesus and say, not my will, but yours be done. But so often we fall from that mark. But hear this word of comfort. God is making all things new. He is completely transforming you, giving you a new heart, bringing you into relationship with him and remembering your sins no more. God is at work to save you. He has promised it and he will do it. This better ministry, this better covenant, these better promises all speak of a new day. A new day that points to a future day. They represent a new departure in the story of God's grace for the human race. Of a new covenant, a better covenant, an eternal covenant, sealed with Christ's blood, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. A covenant which is freely available for all who call on the name of the Lord. Christianity is not about self-confidence or the power of positive thinking or being the best version of yourself. It's about understanding your total need for radical heart surgery. Understanding that you carry the scarlet letter on your back, that you've been unfaithful towards God, that you have dishonoured God and acted shamefully. Christianity is not about self-confidence, it's about Christ-confidence. It's about confidence in God's grace through which he has promised salvation for all who believe. Christianity is about turning your gaze away from yourself and looking to Christ, putting your confidence and trust in him. So dearly beloved, put your confidence in Christ, for in him all the promises of God are yes and amen. Put your confidence in Christ, for he will not put you to shame. He will not expose you as a fraud. Put your confidence in Christ for through him God is transforming transforming the whole world and transforming you into a new creation. Reconciling you back to him and forgiving all of your sins. Friends, you can have confidence in Christ for just as the blood of bulls and goats allowed the high priest to enter into the holy place, now through Jesus' blood, we are brought into the most holy of holy places. The true tent, not the shadow. And through Jesus' blood, we are brought into the presence of God forever. Have confidence in Jesus, our great high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, whoever lives to intercede for you. Let's pray. Dear, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you have poured out your love for us in Jesus. 
that through his blood we are brought into your presence and are reconciled back to you. Please help us by your Holy Spirit to trust in him. Give us confidence in Christ, Lord God. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.